Chapters 21 and 22 of Beautiful Joe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Beautiful Joe by Marshall Saunders. Chapter 21 Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Harry mr maxwell wore a coat with loose pockets and while he was speaking he rested on his crutches and began to slap them with his hands no there's nothing here today he said i think i emptied my pockets before i went to the meeting just as he said that there was a loud squeal oh my guinea pig he exclaimed i forgot him and he pulled out a little spotted creature a few inches long poor dearie did i hurt you and he soothed it very tenderly i stood and looked at mr maxwell for i had never seen anyone like him he had thick curly hair and a white face and he looked just like a girl while I was staring at him, something peeped up out of one of his pockets and ran out its tongue at me so fast that I could scarcely see it and then drew back again. I was thunderstruck. I had never seen such a creature before. It was long and thin like a boy's cane and of a bright green color like grass and it had a queer shiny eyes but its tongue was the strangest part of it it came and went like lightning i was uneasy about it and began to bark what's the matter joe said mrs wood the pig won't hurt you but it wasn't the pig i was afraid of and i kept on barking and all the time that strange live thing kept sticking up its head and putting out its tongue at me and neither of them noticed it it's getting on toward six said mrs wood we must be going home come mr maxwell the young man put the guinea pig in his pocket picked up his crutches and we started down the sunny village street he left his guinea pig at his boarding house as he went by and he said nothing about the other creature so i knew he did not know it was there i was very much taken with mr maxwell he seemed so bright and happy in spite of his lameness which kept him from running about like other young men he looked a little older than Miss Laura, and one day, a week or two later, when they were sitting on the veranda, I heard him tell her that he was just 19. He told her, too, that his lameness made him love animals. They never laughed at him or slighted him or got impatient because he could not walk quickly they were always good to him and he said he loved all animals while he liked very few people on this day as he was limping along he said to mrs wood i am getting more absent-minded every day have you heard of my latest escapade 
No, she said. I am glad, he replied. I was afraid it would be all over the village by this time. I went to church last Sunday with my poor guinea pig in my pocket. He hasn't been well, and I was attending to him before church and put him in there to get warm and forgot about him. Unfortunately, I was late, and the back seats were all full, so I had to sit farther up than I usually do. During the first hymn, I happened to strike Piggy against the side of the seat. Such an ear-splitting squeal he set up. It sounded as if I was murdering him. The people stared and stared, and I had to leave the church overwhelmed with confusion. Mrs. Wood and Miss Laura laughed, and then they got talking about other matters that were not so interesting to me, so I did not listen. But I kept close to Miss Laura, for I was afraid that green thing might hurt her. I wondered very much what its name was. I don't think I should have feared it so much if I had known what it was. There's something the matter with Joe, said Miss Laura when we got into the lane. What is it, dear old fellow? She put down her little hand, and I licked it and wished so much that I could speak. Sometimes I wish very much that I had the gift of speech, and then at other times I see how little it would profit me and how many foolish things I should often say, and I don't believe human beings would love animals as well if they could speak. When we reached the house, we got a joyful surprise. There was a trunk standing on the veranda, and as soon as Mrs. Wood saw it, she gave a little shriek. My dear boy! Mr. Harry was there, sure enough, and stepped out through the open door. He took his mother in his arms and kissed her. Then he shook hands with Miss Laura and Mr. Maxwell, who seemed to be an old friend of his. They all sat down on the veranda and talked, and I lay at Miss Laura's feet and looked at Mr. Harry. He was such a handsome young man and had such a noble face. He was older and graver looking than when I saw him last, and he had a light brown mustache that he did not have when he was in Fairport. He seemed very fond of his mother and of Miss Laura, and however grave his face might be when he was looking at Mr. Maxwell, it always lighted up when he turned to them. What dog is that? he said at last with a puzzled face and pointing to me. Why, Harry, exclaimed Miss Laura, don't you know beautiful Joe that you rescued from that wretched milkman? Is it possible, he said, that this well-conditioned creature is the bundle of dirty skin and bones that we nursed in Fairport? Come here, sir, do you remember me? Indeed, I did remember him, and I licked his hands and looked up gratefully into his face. You're almost handsome now, he said, caressing me with a firm, kind hand, and of a solid build, too. 
You look like a fighter, but I suppose you wouldn't let him fight, even if he wanted to, Laura. And he smiled and glanced at her. No, she said, I don't think I should, but he can fight when the occasion requires it. And she told him about our night with Jenkins. All the time she was speaking, Mr. Harry held me by the paws and stroked my body over and over again. When she finished, he put his head down to me and murmured, Good dog, and I saw that his eyes were red and shining. That's a capital story. We must have it at the Band of Mercy said Mr. Maxwell. Mrs. Wood had gone to help prepare the tea, so the two young men were alone with Miss Laura. When they had done talking about me, she asked Mr. Harry a number of questions about his college life and his trip to New York, for he had not been studying all the time that he was away. What are you going to do with yourself, Gray, when your college course is ended? asked Mr. Maxwell. I'm going to settle down right here, said Mr. Harry. What, be a farmer? asked his friend. Yeah, why not? Nothing, only I imagined you would take a profession. The professions are overstocked, and we have not farmers enough for the good of the country. There is nothing like farming to my mind. In no other employment have you a surer living. I do not like the cities. The heat and dust and crowds of people and buildings overtopping one another and the rush of living take my breath away. Suppose I did go to a city. I would sell out my share of the farm and have a few thousand dollars. You know, I am not an intellectual giant. I would never distinguish myself in any profession. I would be a poor lawyer or doctor living in the back street all the days of my life and never watch a tree or flower grow or tend to an animal or have a drive unless I paid for it. No, thank you. I agree with President Elliot of Harvard. He says scarcely one person in 10,000 betters himself permanently by leaving his rural home and settling in a city. If one is a millionaire, city life is agreeable enough, for one can always get away from it. But I am beginning to think that it is a dangerous thing, in more ways than one, to be a millionaire. I believe the safety of the country lies in the hands of farmers, for they are seldom very poor or very rich. We stand between the two dangerous classes, the wealthy and the paupers. But most farmers lead such a dog's life, said Mr. Maxwell. So they do. Farming isn't made one half as attractive as it should be, said Mr. Harry. Mr. Maxwell smiled. Attractive farming. Just sketch an outline of that, will you, Gray? In the first place, said Mr. Harry. I would like to tear out of the heart of the farmer the thing that is as firmly implanted in him as it is in the heart of his city brother, the thing that is doing more harm to our nation than anything else under the sun. What is that? asked Mr. Maxwell curiously. The thirst for gold. 
The farmer wants to get rich, and he works so hard to do it that he wears himself out soul and body, and the young people around him get so disgusted with that way of getting rich that they go off to the cities to find some other way, or at least to enjoy themselves, for I don't think many young people are animated by a desire to heap up money. Mr. Maxwell looked amused. There is certainly a great exodus from country places cityward, he said. What would be your plan for checking it? I would make the farm so pleasant that you couldn't hire the boys and girls to leave it. I would have them work, and work hard too, but when their work was over, I would let them have some fun. That is what they go to the city for. They want amusement in society, and to get into some kind of crowd when their work is done. The young men and young women want to get together, as is only natural. Now, that could be done in the country. If farmers would be contented with smaller profits and smaller farms, their houses could be nearer together. Their children would have opportunities of social intercourse. There could be societies and clubs, and that would tend to a distribution of literature. A farmer ought to take five or six papers and two or three magazines. He would find it would pay him in the long run, and there ought to be a law made compelling him to go to the post office once a day. Mr. Maxwell burst out laughing. And another to make him mend his roads as well as mend his ways. I tell you, Gray, the bad roads would put an end to all these fine schemes of yours. Imagine farmers calling on each other on a dark evening after a spring freshet. I can see them mirrored and bogged and the house a mile ahead of them. That is true, said Mr. Harry. The road question is a serious one. Do you know how father and I settle it? No, said Mr. Maxwell. We got so tired of the whole business, and the farmers around here spent so much time in discussing the art of road-making as to whether it should be viewed from the engineering point of view or the farmer's practical point of view, and whether we would require this number of stump extractors or that number, and how many shovels and crushers and ditchers would be necessary to keep our roads in order, and so on, that we simply withdrew. We keep our own roads in order. Once a year, Father gets a gang of men and tackles every section of the road that borders upon our land, and our roads are the best around here. I wish the government would take up this matter of making roads and settle it. If we had good, smooth country roads, such as they have in some parts of Europe, we would be able to travel comfortably over them all through the year and our draught animals would last longer, for they would not have to expend so much energy in drawing their loads. End of chapter 21, Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Harry. Chapter 22, What Happened at the Tea Table From my station under Miss Laura's chair, I could see that all the time Mr. Harry was speaking, Mr. Maxwell, although he spoke rather as if he was laughing at him, was yet glancing at him admiringly. When Mr. Harry was silent, he exclaimed, 
you are right you are right gray with your smooth highways and plenty of schools and churches and libraries and meetings for young people you would make country life a paradise and i tell you what you would do too you would empty the slums of the cities it is the slowness and dullness of country life and not their poverty alone that keep the poor in dirty lanes and tenement houses they want stir and amusement too poor souls when their day's work is over i believe they would come to the country if it were made more pleasant for them that is another question said mr harry a burning question in my mind the labor and capital one when i was in new york maxwell i was in a hospital and saw a number of men who had been day laborers some of them were old and feeble and others were young men broken down in the prime of life their limbs were shrunken and drawn they had been digging in the earth and working on high buildings and confined in dingy basements and had done all kinds of hard labor for other men they had given their lives and strength for others and this was the end of it to die poor and forsaken i looked at them and they reminded me of the martyrs of old ground down living from hand to mouth separated from their families in many cases they had had a bitter lot they had never had a chance to get away from their fate and had to work till they dropped i tell you there is something wrong we don't do enough for the people that slave and toil for us we should take better care of them we should not herd them together like cattle and when we get rich we should carry them along with us and give them part of our grains for without them we would be as poor as they are good harry i'm with you there said a voice behind him and looking around we saw mr wood standing in the doorway gazing down proudly at his stepson mr henry smiled and getting up said won't you have my chair sir no thank you your mother wishes us to come to tea there are muffins and you know they won't improve with keeping they all went to the dining room and i followed them on the way mr wood said right on top of that talk of yours harry i've got to tell you of another person who is going to boston to live who is it said mr harry lazy dan wilson i've been to see him this afternoon you know his wife is sick and they're half starved he says he is going to the city for he hates to chop wood and work and he thinks maybe he'll get some light job there mr harry looked grave and mr maxwell said he will starve that's what he will do precisely said mr wood spreading out his hard brown hands as he sat down at the table i don't know why it is but the present generation has a marvelous way of skimming around any kind of work with their hands they'll work their brains till they ain't got any more backbone than a caterpillar but as for manual labor it's old-timey and out of fashion i wonder how these farms would have ever been carved out of the backwoods if the old puritans had sat down on the rocks with their noses and a lot of books and tried to figure out just how little work they could do and yet exist now father 
said Mrs. Wood. You are trying to insinuate that the present generation is lazy, and I'm sure it isn't. Look at Harry. He works as hard as you do. <laughs> isn't that like a woman? said Mr. Wood with a good-natured laugh. The present generation consists of her son and the past of her husband. I don't think all our young people are lazy, Hattie, but how in creation, unless the Lord rains down a few farmers, are we going to support all our young lawyers and doctors? They say the world is getting healthier and better, but we've got to fight a little more and raise some more criminals, and we've got to take to eating pies and doughnuts for breakfast again, or some of our young sprouts from the colleges will go a-begging. "'You don't mean to undervalue the advantages of a good education, do you, Mr. Wood?' said Mr. Maxwell. "'No, no. Look at Henry there. Isn't he pegging away at his studies with my hearty approval? And he's going to be nothing but a plain, common farmer. But he'll be a better one than I've been, though, because he's got a trained mind. I found out when he was a lad going to the village school.' He'd lay out his little garden by geometry and dig his ditches by algebra. Education's a help to any man. What I'm trying to get at is this, that in some way or other, we're running more to brains and less to hard work than our forefathers did. Mr. Wood was beating on the table with his forefinger while he talked, and everyone was laughing at him. "'When you've quite finished speechifying, John,' said Mrs. Wood, "'perhaps you'll serve the berries and pass the cream and sugar. "'Do you get yellow cream like this in the village, Mr. Maxwell?' "'No, Mrs. Wood,' he said. "'Ours is a much paler yellow.' "'And then there was a great tinkling of china "'and passing of dishes and talking and laughing, and no one noticed that I was not in my usual place in the hall. I could not get over my dread of the green creature, and I had crept under the table, so that if it came out and frightened Miss Laura, I could jump up and catch it. When tea was half over, she gave a little cry. I sprang up on her lap, and there, gliding over the table toward her, was the wicked-looking green thing. I stepped on the table and had it by the middle before it could get to her. My hind legs were in a dish of jelly, and my front ones were in a plate of cake, and I was very uncomfortable. The tail of the green thing hung in a milk pitcher, and its tongue was still going at me, but I held it firmly and quite still. Drop it! Drop it! cried Miss Laura in tones of distress, and Mr. Maxwell struck me on the back, so I let the thing go and stood sheepishly looking about me. Mr. Wood was leaning back in his chair, laughing with all his might, and Mrs. Wood was staring at her untidy table with a rather long face. Miss Laura told me to jump on the floor, and then she helped her aunt to take the spoiled things off the table. I felt that I had done wrong, 
so I slunk out into the hall. Mr. Maxwell was sitting on the lounge, tearing his handkerchief in strips and tying them around the creature where my teeth had stuck in. I had been careful not to hurt it much, for I knew it was a pet of his, but he did not know that and scowled at me, saying, "'You rascal, you've hurt my poor snake terribly.' I felt so badly to hear this that I went and stood with my head in a corner. I had almost rather be whipped than scolded. After a while, Mr. Maxwell went back into the room, and they all went on with their tea. I could hear Mr. Wood's loud, cheery voice. The dog did it quite right. A snake is mostly a poisonous creature, and his instinct told him to protect his mistress. Where is he? Joe! Joe! I would not move till Miss Laura came and spoke to me. Dear old dog, she whispered, you knew the snake was there all the time, didn't you? Her words made me feel better, and I followed her to the dining room, where Mr. Wood made me sit beside him and eat scraps from his hand all through the meal. Mr. Maxwell had gotten over his ill humor and was chatting in a lively way. "'Good Joe,' he said. "'I was cross to you, and I beg your pardon. It always riles me to have any of my pets injured.' You didn't know my poor snake was only after something to eat. Mrs. Wood has pinned him in my pocket, so he won't come out again. Do you know where I got that snake, Mrs. Wood? No, she said. You never told me. It was across the river by Blue Ridge, he said. One day last summer, I was out rowing and, getting very hot, tied my boat in the shade of a big tree. Some village boys were in the woods and hearing a great noise, I went to see what it was all about. They were the band of mercy boys, and finding a country boy beating a snake to death, they were remonstrating with him for his cruelty, telling him that some kinds of snakes were a help to the farmer, and destroyed large numbers of field mice and other vermin. The boy was obstinate. He had found the snake, and he insisted upon his right to kill it, and they were having a rather lively time when I appeared. I persuaded them to make the snake over to me. Apparently, it was already dead. Thinking it might revive, I put it on some grass in the bow of my boat. It lay there motionless for a long time. I picked up my oars and started for home. I had got halfway across the river when I turned around and saw that the snake was gone. It had just dropped into the water and was swimming toward the bank we had left. I turned and followed it. It swam slowly and with evident pain, lifting its head every few seconds high above the water to see which way it was going. On reaching the bank, it coiled itself up, throwing up blood and water. I took it up carefully, carried it home, and nursed it. It soon got better and has been a pet of mine ever since. After tea was over and Mrs. Wood and Miss Laura had helped Adele finish the work, they all gathered in the parlor. The day had been quite warm, but now a cool wind had sprung up and Mr. Wood said that it was blowing up rain. 
Mrs. Wood said she thought a fire would be pleasant, so they lighted the sticks of wood in the open grate and all sat round the blazing fire. Mr. Maxwell tried to get me to make friends with the little snake that he held in his hands toward the blaze, and now that I knew it was harmless, I was not afraid of it, but it did not like me and put out its funny little tongue whenever I looked at it. By and by, the rain began to strike against the windows, and Mr. Maxwell said, this is just the night for a story. Tell us something out of your experience, won't you, Mr. Wood? What shall I tell you? He said good-humoredly. He was sitting between his wife and Mr. Harry and had his hand on Mr. Harry's knee. Something about animals, said Mr. Maxwell. We seem to be on that subject today. Well, said Mr. Wood, I'll talk about something that has been running in my head for many a day. There is a good deal of talk nowadays about kindness to domestic animals, but I do not hear too much about kindness to wild ones. The same creator formed them both. I do not see why you should not protect one as well as the other. I have no more right to torture a bear than a cow. Our wild animals around here are getting pretty well killed off, but there are lots in other places. I used to be fond of hunting when I was a boy, but I've got rather disgusted with killing these late years, and unless the wild creatures ran out in our streets, I would lift no hand to them. Shall I tell you some of the sport we had when I was a youngster? Yes, yes, they all exclaimed. End of chapter 22 What Happened at the Tea Table